0: This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation.
1: Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Fawaz Gerges, who holds the Christian A. Johnson Chair in Middle Eastern Studies at Sarah Lawrence College. He's the author of The Far Enemy, Why Jihad Went Global, and most recently, Journey of the Jihadist Inside Muslim Militancy. Thawaz, welcome to Berkeley. My pleasure. Where were you born and raised?
0: Um, I was born and raised uh, in Lebanon. Uh, I left Lebanon uh, at the end of the 1970s uh... in particular as a result of the devastating civil war in the country that started in nineteen seventy five and ended in nineteen
1: ninety uh... before we talk about the impact of that war on you and your family tell me looking back how do you think your parents shaped your thinking about the world
0: well uh... harry when the civil war uh... started in lebanon in nineteen seventy five i was uh... sixteen years old um, Uh, It was a very uh, uh, devastating experience. Uh, It was a shattering experience. You wake up one day at two in the morning and you see your uh, neighbors' friends looting your house. You see your nearby neighbors uh, killing, burning and looting uh, uh, the town. Uh, You become a refugee overnight. Uh, Your world collapses. Um, I, a typical Lebanese, uh, I was a typical Lebanese. Uh, I I come from a middle-class family. I lost dozens of my friends, best friends, uh, schoolmates, uh, relatives, a brother. Uh, uh, So in this particular sense, um, it was a devastating experience. Uh, Lebanon, just to give you an example, what I'm talking about is a very tiny country. Um, It had about three million people. Uh, in the mid-1970s, more than 100,000 people were killed, 200,000 people injured, a million people displaced. Uh, So in this particular sense, it was a devastating social, political, and human uh, experience for all of us.
1: And and before the time of the Civil War, uh, uh, Lebanon had been a successful, multi-ethnic, multi-religious setting
0: Uh, I basically, uh, Harry, I I basically say that Lebanon was the center of the Arab world. uh, The center of the Arab world, and in 1975, the center fell. Um, And in this particular sense, the Arab system lost its balance Mm -hmm. because of the fall of the center, which was Lebanon in the mid-1970s. At the risk of the cliché, Lebanon was a bridge between the east and the west. Lebanon was a laboratory. Of religious and, and cultural uh, coexistence, and in 1975, between 1975 and 1990, Lebanon became a battlefield for inter-Arab uh, rivalries, for inter-Arab rival- rivalries, for religious wars, uh, for um, Arab-Israeli rivalries. For uh, global and, and, and East-West uh, tensions and war by proxies, so in this particular sense, the collapse of the Lebanese experience in 1975 was really pivotal to understanding what happened in the Arab world and the region subsequently.
1: And, and importantly, in your book uh, uh, on the, the journey of the jihadist, you you uh, point that the situation deteriorated so much that not only was there conflict between religions, but also there was conflict and factionalism and violence within religions.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's very easy to say that what was happening in Lebanon between 1975 and 1990 was basically a religious war between Christians and Muslims. In fact, intra-sectarian tensions were as brutal as the tensions between the Christians and the uh, Muslims. Uh, I mean, uh, some terrible fightings took place within the Christian community, within the Muslim communities. In fact, more damage occurred as a result of the intra-communal and sectarian tensions in Lebanon. And as you know, uh, Harry, things are not what they seem uh, to be. Uh, I mean, now we talk about Muslim extremism. Now we talk about Muslim uh, jihadis. Uh, many people don't realize that we, and I am a Christian myself, that we had our own warriors of gods in Lebanon, mm-hmm. that our warriors of gods killed in the name uh, of Christianity. They pioneered the arts, of really, of what I call religious fundamentalism. Uh, and in many ways, uh, what, ha- what, what happened in Lebanon between 1975 and 1990 was not just a religious war between Christians and Muslims, it was also what I call intra-communal uh, conflicts and also regional and global conflicts as well.
1: Mm-hmm. So so what, what did <clears throat> you learn from this experience and how did that impact the studies that you pursued when you left Lebanon?
0: Well, I mean, I was, of course, I was a teenager. And as I mentioned, Harry, it was a very shattering experience for me, um, I mean, in, on, on every single level. And I think really when I left Lebanon in the 1970s, I wanted to understand the modern history of Islam and the Arab world. I wanted to understand the, what I call the persistence of social and political violence in that part of the world. I wanted to understand the deepening sectarian and communal conflicts in the region. And in particular, I wanted to understand the dismal failure of what I call the post-colonial Arab state. Why has the post-colonial Arab state failed dismally? not only to deliver the goods, not only to create institutions, but to create a social contract whereby the idea of citizenship replaces the idea of the sect and the tribe. And I also wanted to understand the role of the great powers and why the great powers, particularly the United States and America, sustains and maintains the dominant authoritarian order in that part of the world.
1: Uh, The two two books that that I showed at the beginning of the program really focus on the jihadists, and how they differ from the Islamicists. What, what led you down that path? Was it, was it uh, events in the world, or is this still being driven by your experience uh, in Lebanon? Well,
0: I am a student of Arab and Muslim politics. Um, I study social movements And uh, my first book, my thesis at Oxford University, where I went to school, was really on the rise of what we call radical Arab nationalism or revolutionary Arab nationalism. And many people don't understand that Islamism and jihadism are social movements. In fact, jihadism uh, was born at the top university departments in the Arab and Muslim world. It was not really born in the ghettos of the Arab world. So in this particular sense, my uh, research endeavors into Islamism and jihadism is really an extension of my interest in understanding social movements, how they uh, rise up, how they devolve, uh, evolve and mutate. And this is really what interests me. Uh, and that's why what led me to understand and try to study uh, Islamism and jihadism.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, if we try to come to understand uh, these movements and, and the way uh, the formula you use in, in the journey book is to to look at the different generations uh, of the jihadists and then the splits that occurred within that movement, which we, we will do in a few minutes. But But initially, I would like for you to talk about who are the intellectual forefathers of, of radicalism in, in Islam?
0: Uh, I think in the modern world, in the 20th century, uh, I would say that Sayyid Qutb uh, uh, was an Egyptian uh, uh, social critic and uh, an Egyptian uh, Islamist who basically uh, supplied the uh, Islamist and the jihadist movement with its manifestos. Uh, Sayyid Qutb uh, was and is the philosopher of the Islamist and the jihadist movement. Uh, he really uh, supplied the inspiration and the motivation, and basically the attack on what he called the secular, decadent Arab states, which in his eyes were not authentic. So, in the 20th century, Sayyid Qutb is the most pivotal voice. For the radical Islamist and the jihadist movement.
1: And, and he, he has an interesting story because he, he went to the United States in the late 40s and was a student even, even in the Midwest.
0: Absolutely. Sayyid Qutb uh, was sent by the uh, Ministry of Education in Egypt to the United States between 1948 and 1950s. He spent two years in the United States uh, studying in the Midwest. And his experience in the United States really shaped his worldviews of American materialism and capitalism. Uh, He looked at the United States as as being obsessed, uh, obsessive materialism. And in fact, uh, he wrote a book, The America That I Have Seen. And The America That I Have Seen is really a brutal and vehement attack on American materialism and obsessiveness. With materialism and sensuality and sexuality. And that particular experience was pivotal in his shaping his subsequent views on the relationship between the Muslim world and the West, particularly the United States.
1: Mm-hmm. In your work, you, uh, you try to explore how the different generations uh, of jihadists <clears throat> took these words and, and built programs uh, on them and were affected by events that the ge- different generations uh, experienced. And and you you actually in your recent book go and interview uh, these jihadists. T- talk a little about that because uh, the the uh, it, it is ex- it's a it's a powerful presentation of what is in the minds of the jihadists by allowing them to talk about their lives and how they experienced events. Uh, the, the, the first generation uh, uh, is represented by uh, Kamal Elsad Habib. Tell us about him and how hard it was to get to him and some of the, the, the research uh, and methodology issues in, in getting his story.
0: Uh- Uh, Harry, I was a bit fortunate that I began uh, work on uh, uh, Islamism and jihadism uh, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, long before jihadism became a household name in America. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of us were doing field research in the region. And of course, it was much easier then to really interview uh, militant Islamists than it is today in the post uh, 9-11. Even though uh, I interviewed uh, Kamal Habib Uh, Kamal Habib uh, was uh, one of the top leaders of a jihadist uh, group called Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Egyptian Islamic Jihad here now is led by Ayman Zawahiri. Uh, He is al-Qaeda second in command. Uh, Egyptian Islamic Jihad uh, was one of the most powerful uh, jihadist organizations in the Arab world. And Kamal Habib played a pivotal role in the in plotting and the assassination of the Egyptian president, uh, Anwar Sadat. And I went to Egypt uh, in the uh, late 1990s. I wanted to understand the story of the first generation and what I call the first generation, uh, those pioneers, uh, those pioneers, jihadis, who basically decided to really unleash a war against the modern Uh, uh, state system in the region, what they called the near enemy. The near enemy uh, were uh, Arab and Muslim governments. And Kamal uh, was a very important uh, 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 person for me. I wanted to understand his journey. Uh, Kamal uh, graduated top in his class at Cairo University in economics and political science. He came from a middle class and upper middle class family. He was destined to be a leader of Egyptian uh, intellectuals uh, and civil society leaders. I wanted to understand why Kamal gambled everything, gave up everything, and decided to, decided to take arms and basically uh, rise up against the Egyptian state uh, and Anwar Sadat. I wanted to understand his story. It took me quite a few months to really uh, interview Kamal Habib because Kamal was sentenced to life in prison. In prison and he spent about 11 years in prison. But finally, after a few months, a few colleagues of mine in Egypt introduced me to Kamal Habib, and they reassured him that I was not, uh, uh, I mean, I did not have any intelligence uh, credentials. Mm -hmm. I basically, I am an academic, and I spent about a few months with Kamal Habib, really having him tell me his story, and the story of his generation. It's a fascinating story, and the book, a journey of the jihadist. Really, this is not a book about argument. It's what I call a book about voices. I wanted radical jihadists to tell their story in their own words. I wanted the American audience to listen to their own voices, not to rationalize, not to justify, not to really uh, 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 pass any moral judgment. But rather, I wanted to, the, um, I wanted the American reader to understand the journey of the jihadist. And in particular, the three generations, the first generation, that is Kamar Habib generation, the second generation, which is Al-Qaeda generation, or the Afghan Arab generation, and the third generation, what I call the Iraq generation.
1: Mm-hmm. In, in looking at this first generation, uh, uh, it, it seems that the turn to faith uh, as an absolute was a byproduct of of two factors that that I saw you identified. One was the the turning point of the 67 war, which was a shock. Uh, And then secondly, the failure of the uh, regimes uh, in the Arab world, and in his case, especially Egypt, to create a public space where change could occur.
0: Ironically, Uh, Most of the first generation, what I call the pioneers, the founding fathers of the jihadist movement, began their careers as nationalists. Mm -hmm. In fact, Kamal Habib, uh, one of the foremost jihadists himself, he said he and his father cried when Gamal Abdel Nasser, uh, the foremost Arab nationalist, basically died uh, 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 in 1970. And I think the turn to militancy, to Islamist militancy in particular, was as a direct result of the shattering defeat of the Arab states in 1967. Many Arabs came to realize that the secular dominant authoritarian order could not even protect the homeland. Not only did the post-colonial state, the secular authoritarian Arab state, fail to deliver the goods, fail to create effective economic and social institutions, it failed to protect the homeland. It failed to create authentic governments based on a sharia the Islamic State, and you're absolutely correct. It was this failure to create legitimate political experiences and to defend the homeland, the defeat, I mean, all the Arab states were defeated by a young, dynamic Jewish state in 1967. That was a shattering experience, a shattering experience to the imagination, uh, the Arab imagination, and really the rise of jihadism was a direct product. Of those two particular uh, uh, factors,
1: and, and amidst these <clears throat> failures, the mosque became the center, the only place where one could uh, seek out political activity, even as the, the religious leaders were essentially co-opted by the state. Uh,
0: Harry, one of the uh, uh, some of the uh, one of the uh, widespread perceptions in the West. Uh, after uh, 9-11 is that somehow uh, uh, Islam is responsible about what's happening in that part of the world and the tragedy of 9-11. People don't realize that jihadism, jihadism was not just a revolt against the local, the social and, 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 and political establishment, but also a revolt against the religious establishment itself. In fact, what jihadists tried to do since the 1960s were to, to say to their population, listen, not only did Arab and, and Muslim leaders fail you, fail you to provide the goods, uh, they failed to protect the homeland, but the religious establishment itself was co-opted by the secular authoritarian decadent order. So in this particular sense, the jihadism itself was a revolt against the social and political order and also against the religious establishment itself because they had a vision, a vision to replace the uh, failing order with authentic governments, governments based on the Sharia or Islamic law.
1: And this group, this first generation really... Turn to violence in in places like Algeria and egypt but but the the adversary was the near adversary uh, but but somehow uh, uh, they were defeated by the states and their secret polices and and what was their response to that
0: i mean Harry after nine eleven in particular in the United States, the question that was not really uh, explained was Why did jihad go global uh, at the end of the 1990s? Since its inception in the 1960s, the jihadist movement was really locally oriented as opposed to being globally oriented. That is, from the mid-1950s until the mid-1990s, the main target of jihadists were basically or was the near enemy, the near enemy meaning Arab and Muslim governments as opposed to the far enemy, the far enemy being the United States and its allies. When I went to interview jihadis in the in 1980s and 1990s, Harry, I could not find a single document, a single manifesto by jihadis on the far enemy. Everything was written on the near enemy. That is the main target, the primary target of jihadism between the mid-1950s and the mid-1990s was the near enemy. And what I wanted to understand myself when I wrote the book The Far Enemy, Why Jihad Went Global, why did jihadism at this belated stage in the mid-1990s decided to go global, decided to target the United States of America? And I asked the question not only because I want to rationalize and justify what happened on 9-11, but rather to understand the shifts and the mutation within the jihadist movement. And as you said, between 1980 and 1990s, local jihadists, local jihadists who targeted the near enemy, were strategically defeated by secular Muslim governments in Egypt and Algeria. As you know, there was a, a, a major a bloody or bloody insurgencies in Egypt and Algeria between 1990 and 1996. And when jihadis were defeated by the near enemy, by Arab and Muslim governments, the question on the table was where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. How do we rescue the sinking jihadist ship? How do we basically uh, absorb the defeat? And basically uh, find a way out of the bottleneck, as Ayman Zawahiri al-Qaeda number two asked in the late 1990s.
1: Before we go down that road, which I want to do in a second, I, I want to, to emphasize that this, this body of experience leads to divisions. And uh, cause, uh, a fascinating, there are two fascinating questions here. One is, what leads the jihadists to moderation? and then what leads them to extremism. Before we talk about extremism, what you're suggesting in your book, uh, as we listen to the words uh, and and, uh, listen to your analysis, is that important factions of the jihadists uh, essentially turned were willing to, ready to turn to moderation in in light of the fact that what had happened to them in prison where they not only were tortured, but in fact uh, began thinking about the inadequacies of their own politics.
0: By mid-1990s, local jihadists like Kamal Habib, Kamal Habib is part of the first generation or the leader of the first generation, were defeated. And they asked the question, where do we go from here? the overwhelming number of local jihadis decided to basically call it quit. They decided to take a break. They decided to call for a unilateral ceasefire against the near Arab uh, Arab and Muslim governments. But a tiny faction within the jihadist movement, led by Ayman Zawahiri and other jihadists like Osama bin Laden. They basically, and those are part of, when I went to Egypt and and, and Yemen and other places, and I began interviewing jihadists in the 1990s, a great debate raged in the 1990s. Where do we go from here? And this tiny faction within the jihadist movement, led by Ayman Zawahiri, made the argument that the only way, the only way to rescue the sinking jihadist ship was to shift the focus from the near enemy, Arab and Muslim governments, to the far enemy, the United States and its allies. And Ayman Zawahiri, in memos written to his lieutenants in Yemen and Egypt and London and other places, argued the only way for us to survive is to basically attack the head of the snake, the head of the snake being the United States, because he argued, and this is in the late 1990s, Harry, he said, when we attack the far enemy, the head of the snake, the head of the snake will likely lash out angrily against the ummah, the ummah being uh, the Muslim community worldwide. And when the far enemy lashes out against the ummah, we would rise up and basically take arms against the far enemy. We would gain, he said, quote unquote, we would gain credibility in the eyes of the ummah. We failed against the near enemy because we could not convince Arab and Muslim population we had a vision. In fact, one of the reasons why the jihadist movement, Harry, lost against the near enemy, it could not create a viable social base. It could not convince mm. Arab and Muslim population they had a vision, a viable vision. And Ayman Zawahiri and others argued that the only way to do so, to create a viable coalition, coalition was to attack the far enemy and basically polarize the world into two camps, the camp of belief led by uh, Al-Qaeda and the new, what I call the transnationalist jihadists, and the world or the camp of unbelief led by the far enemy, the United States and its allies. Uh,
1: In in your narrative, uh, again and again, you've already discussed Lebanon. and, and you go on to discuss other external events. I mean, they're internal to the region, but they involve external actors. We can't go into all of these, but I just want, I, I made a list here uh, because uh, here in the United States, we, we there is a failure of history of remembering the sequence of events and so on. And so, uh, so we have to understand that as we move to the next generation. These individuals, both the soldiers and, and the theorists, are affected by events such as the establishment of the state of Israel, the 1967 war, the Lebanese civil war, the rise of Khomeini, the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan, the U.S. funding of the Mujahideen to in order to counter the Soviet invasion, the Iran-Iraq war, the invasion of Kuwait, and the employment of American troops on Saudi soil, and then the Iraq War I and the Iraq War II. So all of these, in a way, the, these these subsequent generations are experiencing these events, drawing conclusions from them, and becoming radicalized to a new level with new tools. But in the case of al-Qaeda, it's very important to understand that we, al-Qaeda, emerged out of groups that we were supporting in order to counter the Soviet invasion.
0: I mean, history really is critical to the story. Um, I mean, if we if we label uh, transnational jihadists as evil doers, as I mean, the administration uh, has done, the end of discussion and debate. Uh, I mean, the, if they are evil doers, there is no reason to understand history, politics, sociology and the various factors that have shaped their views. No one is suggesting that they they are not murderers. Um, Any attacks on civilians anywhere in the world is terrorism, period, the end of the story. But we need to understand the story. We need to understand why in the late 1990s a group of religious activists, who we call transnational jihadists, decided to target the United States. And as you said, I think the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was truly critical, uh, Harry, to understanding the story of the second generation. Uh, I would say that the 1967 war between um, Israel and its Arab states was pivotal for the creation for the first generation. Mm-hmm. But in the case of what I call the al Qaeda generation or the Afghan Arab generation, the Afghan war was critical. Why was it critical? Here you have. Because it inspired tens of thousands of young Muslims throughout the world, including many Americans, to migrate to Afghanistan and fight on behalf of the persecuted uh, uh, Afghan community in the mountains and valleys and battlefields in Afghanistan. An army of mujahideen Islamic fighters was born. they felt emboldened they felt empowered if they can take if they can take on the greatest military machine of the Soviet Union, surely they can take on another great superpower like the United States. And the reason why, Harry, as you said, the Afghan war is very critical because we were on the side of those Islamic Mujahideen who were battling the Soviet Union. We, the United States of America and Saudi Arabia, provided almost $10 billion in support for the Afghan war, for the Afghan Mujahideen and the Islamic uh, fighters against the Soviet Union. Remember, the Soviet Union was the evil empire and the Mujahideen were the freedom fighters. And in the eyes of many of those Mujahideen, they could not understand why did the United States turn against them at the end of the Afghan War. Many of those Mujahideen could not understand why did the United States decide to station permanent troops in Saudi Arabia after the Second Gulf War in 1990, 1991. And in my interviews and the book I asked, the Far enemy, why Jihad went global. In fact, one of the most pivotal factors. In the story of Osama bin Laden and his mujahideen and his jihadis was basically the permanent stationing of American troops in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is critical to the story of the second generation,
1: and and it is important in understanding the Afghan war that the these regimes that we've been talking about uh, were very supportive of the resistance to the to Russian invasion. So they, they were they were schooling their. Uh, young people to take up a gun and, and go fight in Afghanistan against the Soviets.
0: In many ways, uh, Harry, I think it is accurate to say that the Afghan War between 1979 and 1989 was really sim- similar to the Spanish Civil War. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really, it, 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 it represented Uh, an awakening on the part of the the Muslim community worldwide. And the United States and its allies, particularly Pakistan and Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states, including Egypt, played a major role in the migration of tens of thousands of young Muslims to the mountains and valleys and battlefields of Afghanistan. In fact, Saudi Arabia used to provide 75% discount on every airline ticket (laughs) to a mujahid, an Islamic fighter who would go... Uh, to Afghanistan, the United States provided billions of dollars to the Pakistani security forces and military forces to arm the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And this is why the Afghan war in every single level was really the driver behind the rise of a new generation, what I call the second generation, the Afghan Arabs. But the story of, of Osama bin Laden himself could not be understood without understanding the second Gulf War, what I call the catalyst. When the United States decided to maintain troops, permanent troops in Saudi Arabia, Osama bin Laden left Saudi Arabia in 1991 and decided to declare war on the United States. Harry, a footnote, historical footnote. Up to 1991, Osama bin Laden was in the same trenches as the United States, the Pakistani government and Saudi Arabia against the evil empire. It was in 1991 that Osama bin Laden left Saudi Arabia and went to Pakistan and then to Sudan and then back to Afghanistan. And this is why we have to understand what happened in 1991. In fact, up to 1995, Osama bin Laden was on record saying he was against targeting American civilians, up to 1995. And this is why, even though we know that he is a murderer, even though we know that he ordered murderers to target uh, American civilians and Muslim civilians, we need to understand his journey. Why did Osama bin Laden break, I mean, did have a major uh, breakup with the United States and Saudi Arabia and decided to declare an all-out war against the United States and its allies?
1: And, and, and this then makes one go back to what you said earlier that That in in the intellectual origins of uh, the jihadists, there is an emphasis on the spiritual, on the the, the, the absolute devotion to the faith, so that the the presence of American troops in Saudi Arabia, the home of the two holy sites, is in essence a desecration in the eyes of some jihadists? Well,
0: I mean, I think it's very difficult for us in the United States because we are relatively, relatively a secular nation. We cannot really understand the role and the place of faith uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in people's lives in that part of the world. Saudi Arabia um, uh, was the birthplace of the Prophet Muhammad, where Prophet Muhammad was born and lived uh, uh, all his life. Uh, Saudi Arabia is the uh, place of Mecca and Medina, the two holiest uh, uh, Muslim shrines. Saudi Arabia resonates deeply Uh, in the Muslim imagination. And the stationing of American troops in Saudi Arabia in the eyes of Osama bin Laden and his entourage represented a great crime, um, humiliation uh, uh, against Islam and against Islamic culture. And I think to me, I I come back here because you reminded me your question was very critical, uh, understanding the question of faith and how uh, religion basically is the driver uh, uh, in, 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 in when, when we talk about religious activists like Islamists and jihadists, even even myself, I, vi- I find it extremely difficult when I interview uh, Islamists and uh, radical jihadists to understand this pivotal place, this pivotal role of re- religion in their life. They behave in the modern world as if God really is given them orders. They behave in the modern world as somehow faith is the most critical component of their well-being. And this is really what's, what's really essential for us in the United States to understand, in particular for students, is that for certain societies, for, cert- for certain communities, faith is the most uh, uh, decisive factor in their well-being. And this is really what we need to understand.
1: Mm-hmm. There's one other element uh, that I want to bring up that you touch on uh, in your work. You, there you were looking at the biography of a uh, a narr- uh, of a soldier Abu Jandel, who is part of the the second generation, and that is the way these uh, 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 soldiers uh, of faith, or whatever we will call them, uh, were were products of globalization in a sense. So that having gone through this Afghan experience, and then nothing to do in essence. The The enemy was defeated, namely the Soviet Union, that they were seized opportunities uh, 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 to engage in struggle in other parts of the world, Bosnia, Chechnya, and so on. And again, this goes back to uh, the, the comparison you made with the Spanish Civil War. Talk about that, because it's very important. It is, it is a set of experiences and a set of opportunities that the, the increasingly globalized world present. Uh,
0: I don't think we can understand the globalization of jihad without understanding the Afghan war itself. The Afghan war contributed to the globalization of jihad, the creation of an army of mujahideen, Islamic fighters who are ready to battle on the behalf of the Ummah, the Islamic community worldwide. Not only did the Afghan war between 1979 and 1989 globalize uh, Jihad. But also, uh, Harry, and this is part of history, what we need to understand there were so many fault lines, so many war zones in the 1980s and 1990s Bosnia, Kosovo, Chechnya, Albania, and other places where there was really an awakening on the part of the Muslim community. And the Afghan war played a major role in this particular equation, really contributing to the rise of the awakening of what I call Islamic awakening and revival. So yes, but also what we need to understand also that how the Islamic revolution in Iran itself in 1975, also and the the systemic effort on the part of the mullahs in Iran to export their vision and revolution to the rest of the Arab world. Many jihadis whom I interviewed, even though they're Sunni jihadis, as opposed to being Shiites like uh, uh, Iran, they were terribly influenced by the Islamic Revolution in Iran. The Islamic Revolution in Iran provided a model to be uh, uh, imitated uh, throughout that part of the world.
1: And, and what, what one is left with a, a really powerful sense from your works and what you're saying here that, that we can't understand what has become our adversary unless we understand their history and the narratives that compel them. And sometimes that, uh, that history is a product of the unintended consequences of our actions.
0: I mean, whoever believed that the Afghan war would not only bring about the defeat of the Soviet Union and probably the collapse of the former Soviet Union, but also former jihadis who were uh, relatively supported by the United States and its allies would turn their guns against the United States of America. The same, the same Mujahideen whom we supported, uh, and if not directly, the Pakistani government and Saudi Arabia and other uh, uh, governments, basically decided to take on the United States and turn their guns against the United States. Not only we need to understand the context, uh, but also we need to understand our own actions, here. Uh, we, the United States of America, we are not an innocent bystander in this particular tragic play. We are an active player in this particular tragic play. Not only we supported the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, not only we supplied arms and money and, and, and intelligence, we also decided to intervene in the Gulf War in 1991, 1990 and 1991, and also put, I mean, maintain tens of thousands of American troops in Saudi Arabia, the birthplace of Islam, and thus antagonize a large critical segment of the Muslim world. American foreign policy is a critical factor in this particular equation. This is not to say that what happened on 9-11 or subsequently can ever justify or rationalize uh, uh, basically uh, the actions of those murderers but the United States has been a critical player our actions do make a difference and we need to understand not only the context but also american foreign policy as well
1: and uh... this definitely applies to what we can call the third generation the new resistance that is emerging you know in response to uh, the American invasion of Iraq, uh, which has become the Al-Muqawama, is that how you pronounce it? Al-Muqawama, resistance. It's a resistance, uh, which is now a very powerful force in the Muslim world.
0: We talked about the first generation, that is the pioneers or the founding fathers. And we talked about the second generation, Al-Qaeda generation or the Afghan Arabs and how the Afghan war was really critical. Now I and other uh, uh, academics are talking about the third generation, the Iraq generation, broadly defined. And hey, I have been, in the last 15 months, I I have been uh, residing in the Middle East as a Carnegie scholar. Uh, I have interviewed hundreds of activists, of young kids, teenagers, Mm -hmm. who are desperately trying to go to Iraq and fight the Americans. And in fact, you cannot understand the rise of the third generation, the Iraq generation, without understanding critical foreign policy decisions made by the United States, its decision to invade and occupy Iraq uh, a few years ago. Our invasion and occupation of Iraq has basically now contributed to the third to the rise of the third generation, the Iraq generation. Uh, and, and, and what's ironic and what's tragic as well, the third generation, the Iraq generation of militants, seems to be bloodier and more militant than the second generation. That is the Al-Qaeda generation. Whoever believed that you can really have a new generation which is really more militant and, 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 and bloodier than the Al-Qaeda generation. Terrorism for the third generation is now the rule rather than the exception. The Al-Qaeda leadership, Harry, used and has used terrorism as a political tool to basically send messages and achieve strategic purposes. Now the third generation is using terrorism as a, as a rule, is no longer an exception, not only against the coalition forces and the United States forces, but also against Muslims, particularly uh, Shiite Iraqis. Uh,
1: somewhere in one of your books, you, you suggest that uh, uh, the, 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 the ideology driving U.S. foreign policy, a, uh, an ideology <clears throat> of triumphalism, of intervention and transformation, that, that in, a, in a sense fuels the fire. Uh, of those, you know, on th- this third generation. Talk a little about that.
0: Uh, ironically, uh, in the late 1990s, when Ayman Zawahiri, al-Qaeda number two, was trying to convince his lieutenants to join the jihad, the global jihad against the United States, he made it very clear that when we attacked the far enemy, the far enemy would lash out angrily against the ummah mm-hmm. and we would gain credibility in the eyes of the ummah. To many, I mean, many of the young uh, Muslim teenagers who are desperately trying to join the fight in Iraq, they have nothing to do with al-Qaeda. Nothing to do with al-Qaeda whatsoever. I ask him, Harry, when I interview young teenagers in Egypt and Yemen and Syria and other places, why are you trying to go to Iraq and basically get killed in the process? And those teenagers, 15, 16, 17 years old, look me in the eyes and tell me, Are you being patronizing? You don't understand why we are trying to go to Iraq and fight on the behalf of the ummah? Our land is being occupied by an infidel power. The United States of America is waging a crusade against Islam and Muslims. In many ways, our narrative, the U.S. narrative, Harry, uh, in the last few years, we are in Iraq in order to liberalize and democratize. We are in Iraq in order to help Iraqis create a new political experience. I would like you to know, Harry, that very few Muslims I have talked to believe in this particular narrative. In fact, what appears to have happened in the last few years is that the Al-Qaeda ideological claims, that is, the United States is waging a crusade against Islam and Muslims, appears to find receptive ears among many Muslims, not just radical Islamists, but even mainstream Muslims. And tragically, tragically, the American-led invasion and occupation of Iraq has radicalized and militarized a critical component of the mainstream public opinion, mainstream public opinion, as opposed to radical and militant Islamist opinion.
1: When you look on the American debate uh, on, on, on U.S. foreign policy, uh, and here I'm thinking of Thomas Friedman, who invariably will have a column that says, where are the moderates? in the Muslim world? Why do not they come forward? What, what is your response to that?
0: You know, two questions, Harry, after 9-11, dominated the two simplistic questions, two reductions questions de- dominated the debate in the United States. Where are the Muslim moderates and why do they hate us so much? I mean, think about the two debates. I mean, every time I go on American television, uh, why do they hate us so much? The idea is that somehow, not only they equate jihadists with Islamists, they equate jihadists with the entire Muslim community. The entire Muslim community in the eyes of those reductionist American commentators basically hate the United States. Nonsense. It's nonsense because there's a great deal of fascination towards America. There's a great deal of attraction towards America. Even those who are deeply critical of American foreign policy have great respect for the American idea, the American dream, the American the open society, the respect for human rights. So no, they don't hate America in fact, they are very critical of American foreign policy. Where are the Muslim moderates, Harry? That's the question. And the reason why this question is very critical because this question led to what I call a conceptual flaw in American foreign mm-hmm. policy, a flaw to equate this tiny, I mean, group of jihadis, mm-hmm. who number, by the way, in a few thousand. We're talking about three, 4,000 transnational jihadis with the entire Muslim community and lead us to the uh, killing fields of Iraq. In fact, in my book, The far enemy. I document the universal rejection of Al Qaeda and 9/11 by the entire by the entire Muslim community and the clerical community. Not only not only did clerics and mainstream mainstream clerics in the Muslim world denounce Al Qaeda and 9/11, including some of the top clerics, Hassan Fadlallah of Lebanon, the top Shiite cleric. Hassan al-Turabi, the Turabi of Sudan, uh, Yusuf Qardawi of Egypt, but even former jihadists, local jihadists, vehemently criticized Al-Qaeda and 9-11 because to them 9-11 threatened the very existence of the Islamist movement. Dozens of books written by former jihadists, hundreds of articles, great debate raging in the Muslim world about 9-11 and critiques of 9-11 and Al-Qaeda, yet in the United States, our commentators who neither read Arabic nor pay attention to the raging debate in the Muslim world keep asking, where are the Muslim moderates? All they had to do was to basically read the press on a daily basis. All they had to do was mm-hmm. to go and to interview radical, to interview radical former jihadists to realize there was a universal rejection of Al-Qaeda and 9-11 and the murders that were perpetrated against the United States. One of the reasons why there was some misunderstanding, I believe, because while most clerics and most civil society leaders denounced Al-Qaeda and 9-11, they do think that its rhetoric makes sense, the critique of American foreign policy. And this particular confusion Mm-hmm. between criticizing American foreign policy and denouncing the murderous tactics of al-Qaeda on 9-11 explains, I think, the confusion of that, that basically has dominated the American scene after
1: 9-11. Some of the critiques that you cite in your uh, uh, Far Enemy book uh, are... Are are quite insightful. I mean, what are the goals here, they're asking al-Qaeda? What are the resources? What will be the consequences? So it's a very, very uh, pragmatic view of of what was, what they perceive as a political failure.
0: You know, when I went to Egypt and Yemen and other places, Muslim countries, uh, uh, you know, after 9-11, the question, even some of the leading, even Kamal Habib and his uh, associates, they said, listen, we could not take on the near enemy in the 1980s and 1990s. We were defeated by the near enemy. How could we take on the far enemy, the greatest military, economic and political power in the world? And how could we, why would we unleash the power of the United States, not only against the Islamist movement, but even against the ummah itself? It was a very Pragmatic, very utilitarian critique, but also there was a a moral component. Some of the clerics, some of the leading Muslim clerics like uh, Pantawi and and, uh, 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 Yusuf Qardawi did focus on the question that the attacks on American civilians violate the deep values of Islam, that Islam does not sanction targeting civilians, does not really sanction aggression against uh, uh, states that are not, that were not, uh, in war uh, with the Muslim Ummah.
1: How, how would you like your insights to uh, affect uh, uh, U.S. foreign policy? And, and what do you, how do you see that process? Because, I mean, you're, you're laying out uh, quite an interesting analysis of the error of our ways in perceiving uh, uh, the, the, the Muslim world. Uh, how, how do you think... Your analysis can be made to make a difference,
0: Uh, Harry. I I come back to the question of the conceptual flaw in the dominant narrative in the within the administration and the U.S. commentary community. And again, we really cannot understand why we find ourselves where we are today in the shifting sands in Iraq. Why we are have alienated. Uh, the the, uh, mainstream uh, Muslim community without understanding this conceptual flaw. What am I talking about? I'm talking about after 9-11, we have created what I call the Al-Qaeda-centric approach. The Al-Qaeda-centric approach is an approach that lumps all jihadis together, the local jihadis and the transnational jihadis. The Al-Qaeda-centric approach lumps all Islamists together with Al-Qaeda, uh, in the sense, as the president said, they are part of Islamofascism. They're all Islam, uh, Islamo-fascist And this is, this is a great misreading of the complexity of the Muslim seed, that there are major dif- what I have been trying to say, there are major differences, not only within the jihadist movement, but also between Islamist and jihadists. And if we understand this particular, what I call the fault lines, that exist between jihadists, and also between jihadis and Islamists, we can understand that this particular war cannot be won on the battlefield. That the most effective means, Harry, to win this particular war against Al-Qaeda is to internally encircle Al-Qaeda. The most effective means to win this particular war mm. against transnationalist jihadis is to create alliances with mainstream Muslim public opinions and also moderate Islamists. Because, in fact, I would argue that after 2002, Al-Qaeda was in a coma. Al-Qaeda was in a coma because Al-Qaeda was internally encircled. Al-Qaeda could not have universal support in the Muslim world. What we did, um, of course, after 2002, by expanding the war on Ta'a, by invading Iraq, by trying to social engineer, forcefully uh, 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 engineer social and political change, we have played into the hands of al-Qaeda. We have given al-Qaeda more ideological ammunition, motivation. We have revived al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda now, as all our intelligence services say, is a much more powerful uh, agency than it used to be uh, uh, in 2002.
1: When when we look at the the, the Arab uh, Muslim world, one sees as in, and it comes out in your description of the Lebanon civil war, and in the various ways things have played out, we see there are so many fault lines uh, between sects, between tribes, between uh, clans, between uh, religious communities, and on and on. What what, what how do you see this? process of changing the course of our policy that you just described by, by responding to the moderates in the region. How, how do you see that, the transcendence of all of these fault lines and divisions? I mean,
0: tragically, after 9-11, we portrayed the conflict as a conflict between the United States of America and certain components of Muslim societies, call them Islamists, call them radical Islamist or mainstream Islamists or jihadists. I think what people don't really, the the reason why, uh, uh, I mean, your question is very critical, because the internal fault lines within the Muslim world are as important as the fault lines between jihadis and the Western states, particularly the United States of America. And those fault lines, Harry, are really shaking Arab and Muslim societies to their very foundations. I'm talking about sectarian fault lines. I'm talking about socioeconomic fault lines. You have between 30 and 40 percent of Arab and Muslim populations live either in poverty or below the poverty line. You have oppressive governments, oppressive governments that have bled their societies dry. You have hardly any democracies, I mean, failed economies and failed institutions. And also there is a widespread perception in the region that we, the United States of America, is maintaining the status quo in the region, maintaining this oppressive order, this oppressive political order, and also the failed uh, post-colonial state in the region. And I think a first step in this particular equation is to what I call, since we, I, I call it conceptual flaw, is to have what I call a uh, uh, real understanding of the dynamics, of the patterns, of the fault lines, that uh, uh, internal fault lines in the regions are real, and we need to find ways and means, what I call a grand strategy, to rejuvenate, rejuvenate failed economies, failed uh, institutions, to build alliances with Arab and Muslim societies, civil societies, as opposed to going to bed with uh, oppressive dictators.
1: One, one final question. If, if students were watching this program, how would you advise them uh, to prepare for uh, achieving understanding of the region, but also if, if they want to become scholars of the region. What, what, what are the prerequisites uh, for doing that?
0: Uh, I tell my students, Harry, is that there is nothing unique. There is nothing unique about the Arab and Muslim world. What's happening uh, in the Arab and Muslim world is, is part of what I call a historical process historical process of development, uh, political transition, and evolution. And the first thing they must do is to read and read greatly in history, in politics, in sociology, in anthropology, in order to understand the dynamics in the region, in order to understand the internal dynamics that have shaped Arab and Muslim politics, in particular since the, the last 300 years, and also the pivotal role that the great powers have done, in particular the Western powers and the United States, and the role of colonialism in shaping the destinies of the region.
1: If I was on that note, I want to uh, thank you for your two books, which I will uh, show our audience again, both of which I recommend highly, The Far Enemy and Journey of uh, the Jihadists. Uh, uh, thank you very much for appearing on our program today. Thank you for having me. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history.
0: You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.